Hi there, welcome back for another episode of the Mind Your Liberty podcast. My name is Andrew. Today is September 29th, 2022. And this year, if you've been following along so far, you know that we've been going through some American Revolution era documents and reading through those and trying to draw some insights from them. Got another one today. So as far as the title goes, since it wasn't a speech or a proclamation or anything, there's really not a good title, except it's just a letter from the Boston Town Meeting to Dennis DeBert in September of 1768. I think you'll find, like I did, that there's some insights in this simple letter. It's short and it's simple. It's not famous. But I think you'll find that there's some insights as we look into a window of this correspondence that was going back and forth from the colony to Great Britain back in the day. So I hope you'll stick around and listen. Now I got to give you a little background info. Again, we're going back to September of 1768. So the now famous Massachusetts circular letter that was sent out from the Massachusetts General Assembly in February had reached King George III. That letter, which I had covered in an episode back in February of this year, had stated its purpose that the colonies would, quote, harmonize with each other in seeking redress for grievances such as the Declaratory and Townsend Acts, which were both just revenue-raising acts. They were getting taxed without representation. It was arbitrary power. You've hopefully been acquainted with those terms if you've been listening all year. Now, it had been sent, that letter had been sent to several colonies, published in newspapers on both sides of the Atlantic, and, oh yeah, it had been sent to the king, who is addressed as our common head and father in the letter. The king, however, did not take it as well as was apparently hoped. In June, the Massachusetts Assembly heard the response from the king, read by Governor Bernard. And here's a quote. Now, here's an abridged quote from that letter that General Bernard read from the king. It gives great concern to his majesty that the house had presumed to revert to and resolve upon a measure of so inflammatory a nature as that of writing to the other colonies on the subject of their intended representations against some late acts of parliament. End quote. If you want to check out that whole unabridged document, the response from the king, it's fun to read, except it's uh, all the S's look like F's, I'll warn you. But it's linked in the description if you want to go check that out. So to make a long story a bit shorter, like we heard in the Massachusetts Circular Letter episode, the king, well, actually the governor, Bernard, ordered the house to rescind the letter, which they refused to do. There was a big celebration. Townspeople were cheering. And there's actually a song uh, that they were singing that's recorded here. And I'm going to read that for you here. Still part of the introduction. Come, join hand in hand, brave Americans all, and rouse your bold hearts at fair liberty's call. No tyrannous act shall suppress your just claim or stain with dishonor America's name. In freedom we're born, and in freedom we'll live. Our purses are ready. Steady, friends, steady. Not as slaves, but as freemen our monies will give. Our worthy forefathers, let's give them a cheer. To climates unknown did courageously steer. Through oceans to deserts for freedom they came, and dying bequeathed us their freedom and fame. Their generous bosoms, all dangers despised. So highly, so wisely, their birthrights they prized. We'll keep what they gave. We will piously keep, not frustrate their toils on the land or the deep. The tree, their own hands to liberty reared. They lived to behold growing strong and revered. With transport then cried, now our wishes we gain. For our children shall gather the fruits of our pain. 
Swarms of placemen and pensioners soon will appear, like locusts, like locusts deforming the charms of the year. Suns vainly will rise, showers vainly defend, if we are to drudge for what others shall spend. Then join hand in hand, brave American all, by uniting we stand, by dividing we fall. In so righteous a cause, let us hope to succeed, for heaven approves of each generous deed. All ages shall, all ages shall speak with amaze and applause of the courage we'll show in support of our laws. To die we can bear, but to serve we disdain. For shame is to freemen more dreadful than pain. This bumper I crown for our sovereign's health, and this for Britannia's glory and wealth. That wealth and that glory immortal may be, if she is but just, and if we are but free. I thought that was a really neat song. I read that again in that uh, biography of Samuel Adams by Ira Stoll. He has recorded there, and he cites it in the bibliography. So that was just too cool to pass up. But back to the history. Uh, after the assembly refused to rescind the letter, again, you'll remember the assembly was dissolved by Governor Bernard. And as you'll hear in the letter, Bernard refused multiple requests to recall the assembly to address the issues that were popping up and needing to be addressed. So it was dissolved at the end of June, and now here we are in September. As a result, the various towns took it upon themselves to assemble town meetings to address the issues that were popping up. Again, there's, there was no government. They still had to govern. They still had to maintain law and order and address trade issues and everything that had to be done when you're living in a, you know, a community, a polis. But there was no proper channel to do that because he wouldn't reconvene the uh, assembly. So the first of these Boston town meetings on September 12th, 1768, they proclaimed that everyone be armed with a musket, and they asked that the local pastors were going to call an official day of prayer and fasting. I thought that was pretty cool. And they scheduled this next town meeting which took place on September 22nd, 1768. At that meeting, they wrote this letter to their agent in London, Dennis DeBert. And it's uh, spelled like Denny's, the restaurant Denny's, without the apostrophe. Sometimes his name is DeBert, sometimes it's just DeBert. There's not a lot of information out there on him. But I'm going to read the entry for Colonial Agent from Wikipedia here to give us an idea of his purpose in life. Here we go. A colonial agent was the official representative of a British colony based in London during the British Empire. About 200 men served. They were selected and paid a fixed salary by the colonial government, and given the long delays in communication, they played a major role in negotiating with royal officials and explaining colonial needs and resources. Their main business was with the Board of Trade, where the agent dealt with land problems, border disputes, military affairs, and Indian affairs. They provided the British officials with the documents and news, secured acceptance of controversial colonial legislation, and tried to head off policies objectionable to the colonies. They handled the appeals cases, which usually went to the Privy Council. Before 1700, a colony would send occasional special agents on a temporary basis. Thus, Rhode Island sent John Clark in 1660 to secure a royal charter. It took two years, and then he returned. Permanent agents become the practice thereafter 1700, most were Americans, but some were British. Many of the agents worked together in 1730 to 1733 to oppose a bill establishing a monopoly in the West Indian rum, sugar, and molasses. The most famous agent was Benjamin Franklin, who was employed for 15 years by Pennsylvania and also by Georgia. 
New Jersey, and Massachusetts. Others include Richard Jackson, a prominent London, a prominent London lawyer who represented Connecticut, and Charles Pinckney, who represented South Carolina. I'm going to leave off the Wikipedia article there. So this letter was sent off uh, not only to DeBert, but it was sent to the Boston Gazette for publication, which it was published, I think, on October 10th. Let me check real quick here. Was published on October 10th. Yep. So hopefully that background information brings us up to date, helps us get in in the in person, so to speak, as we read this letter, as if we're Dennis DeBert or a reader in the Boston Gazette readership, and help us understand, as we listen to the letter, some of the intrigues, the feelings, the different sides of the arguments. I will also, before we jump off, just point out that when you hear the word nation, he's referring to Britain in there. We, us having been a United States of America as a nation for so long when we think nation. We normally refer to that as ourselves, or at least I do. So when you read that, nation is referring to Britain. So enjoy the read, and I'll catch you on the other side. Sir, the inhabitants of a number of towns within this province, having at their several town meetings, legally called, taken under their most mature consideration the great and prevailing uneasiness among the people of the province in general, arising from an apprehension that their charter and constitutional rights and liberties are infringed by the late acts of Parliament for the raising of a revenue in America without their consent, and also from the immediate prospect of a standing army to enforce the execution of these acts. At this time, when they may reasonably hope the late dutiful and loyal supplications of the representatives for a redress of the grievance is under the consideration of our gracious sovereign, from whose wisdom and clemency they expect relief, and being deprived of the benefit of a general assembly, His Excellency the Governor, having dissolved the same at an unusual season and in an unusual manner, declaring that he does not think himself at liberty to call a new one till he shall receive further orders from His Majesty. The said towns have severally made choice of committees to meet together, consult, and advise to such measures as may tend to promote the peace and good order of His Majesty's subjects in this province at so alarming and distressing a crisis. And being convened for the purpose aforesaid at Boston, we have taken the earliest opportunity to assure the governor of the province and the world in our petition offered to His Excellency, which we caused immediately to be published, and is herewith enclosed, to disclaim all pretensions to any authoritative and governmental acts. And you will please to observe, by a copy of our whole proceedings now sent to you, that we have strictly adhered to the express design of our convention. We have taken the liberty to write you, as a known friend to the province, and to beg the favor of you to use your kind endeavor to prevent any misrepresentations of our meeting and proceedings, which our enemies may be ready to make. We flatter ourselves that you may be enabled from this instance to afford to His Majesty's ministers and the good people of Britain a fresh token of the loyalty of our respective towns to His Majesty, their attachment to His government, and the love of peace and good order. We wish and pray for the happy time when a national attention shall be given to the grievances we labor under and the true source of them. When such a period shall come, we are persuaded that the union and harmony which has hitherto subsisted between Great Britain and the colonies, and upon which the welfare of both undoubtedly depends, will be confirmed and established. The present discontent we apprehend 
originally arose from the nations having been informed of the ability of the people here to pay considerable duties and taxes. Whoever made such a representation surely did not attend duly to the heavy load of debt lying upon this province, incurred chiefly by our expenses in defending and enlarging His Majesty's American territories in the last war, which was borne by the people with the greatest alacrity. The nation, being itself involved in a heavy debt, was easily induced to avail itself of the supposed influence of the colonies, and, unfortunately, as they apprehend, took such a measure as will naturally awaken the jealousy of every free and sensible people, namely by passing acts to tax them without their consent. The late Stamp Act, made for this purpose, was indeed repealed, but other acts of the same nature and tendency, though perhaps not so apparently obnoxious, are in full force and daily executing. The people in consequence complained of these acts as being abridgments of such constitutional rights as are laid deep in the foundation of nature, but these complaints have been represented as arising from a spirit of faction, disloyalty, and rebellion. Their most dutiful and loyal petitions to His Majesty, they have been informed by the last advice from London, had not reached His Royal Presence. Nay, His Majesty, as they are told, has been assured that his subjects of this province have even attempted to excite the same spirit among his other colonies by a circular letter, the only purport of which was to acquaint them of their having petitioned for relief from the common grievance, with hopes of success from the royal clemency. In order to raise the jealousy of the nation, the most trifling incidents have been wrought up to the highest pitch of aggravation by persons who still find means to gain a credit there, we shall only recur to the most recent instances. On the 18th of March last, being the anniversary of the repeal of the Stamp Act, and observed as a day of rejoicing, a few disorderly persons, mostly boys, assembled in the evening, paraded some of the streets, and finally repaired to the house of John Williams, Esquire, the Inspector General. Whether their design was to do him an injury or not, by his address and soft treatment of them, together with the interposition of some of the neighboring householders, they soon retired and dispersed, without doing any mischief at all. His Majesty's counsel, in their answer to the governor, which is enclosed, have declared this to be too inconsiderable to make it a subject of representation, and that it could not have been made the subject of so injurious a one, but by the persons disposed to bring misery and distress upon the towns and province, and their declaration, it is said, has given great offense to the governor. There was indeed, on the 10th of June following, something that had rather more of the appearance of riot, but it was only of a few hours of existence, and with very little mischief. But, as we are informed, that the town of Boston have already given you a full account of this affair, supported by affidavits, we shall not give you the further trouble of reciting it, but refer you to their letter. It is, however, to be observed that if the inhabitants of that town have been disposed to give the least countenance to this riot, so exasperated were the people at the extraordinary and unusual exertion of the naval power, when there could be no apprehension that the king's officers would be in the least measure molested in the due execution of lawful power, as well as the haughty behavior of the commissioners of the customs, that the least countenance would have been sufficient to have led them on to extremities." but they soothed them, and the people soon dispersed after having broke a few panes of glass, not to the value of five pounds. We cannot help taking notice here of a notorious instance of the inveterate temper of our enemies, 
in a representation made in a certain letter of this riotous assembly's having burnt a beautiful barge belonging to the collector of the customs before Mr. Hancock's door. As this worthy gentleman sustains a public character, and is one of the principal inhabitants of the province, it is apparent that the malice of the writer of that letter was not confined to a single gentleman, but extended to the public. The truth is, the barge was burnt on a common, surrounded with gentlemen's seats, and the scene could not be said to be before Mr. Hancock's door any more than before the doors of diverse other gentlemen in the neighborhood. The mean insinuation that was done under the influence of Mr. Hancock is so far from the least shadow of truth that it is notorious here that the tumult was finally dispersed, principally by his exertions, animated by his known regard to peace and good order. His Majesty's Council afterward gave a just account of the occasion of that riot, and repeatedly desired that the governor would order the same to be made public, but without success. Care was taken, however, by those who, to speak in the softest terms, are unfriendly to us, to transmit this affair to the nation in so aggravated a light as to incense to a high degree. And we cannot indeed wonder that when such false representations are made by persons, as we have reason to believe, of rank and figure here, our mother country should for a while give credit to them, and under an apprehension of a general insurrection, should send military force to subdue a people, if we may be allowed to say it, at least as orderly and well-affected, as sensible to their just rights, and yet as patient under oppression till they can be constitutionally relieved, as any in His Majesty's empire. Nothing, we apprehend, is wanting to restore a much-desired harmony, but for His Majesty's subjects on both sides of the Atlantic, fully to explain themselves to each other, which is not likely to be done through the medium of interested and designing men. Such men would not scruple to raise their fortunes, though at the ruin of the empire. Could such men be removed, the nation, attentive to the calm voice of reason, which we humbly apprehend has been uttered by the colonies, would soon view their disposition, we may at least be allowed to say, that of this province, in this just light, and be convinced that it is their warmest inclination, as well as in their power, to add strength and riches to the mother state, and administer to the splendor of the British crown. Thus we have given you a full account of the occasion, nature, and design of our convening, which is by no means to assume to ourselves any authority of government, but only as a number of the private fellow-subjects met together, to consult and advise the most effectual measures to promote the peace and good order of His Majesty's subjects at this very difficult and distressing time. We herewith enclose to you a humble, dutiful, and loyal petition to our most gracious Sovereign, which we beg the favor of you to present to His Majesty in person as speedily as possible. We rest in strict truth and with great respect, etc., Thomas Cushing, Chairman. Okay, so again, it closes out with Thomas Cushing's signature, but uh, we think it was written by Samuel Adams. So it's kind of, it was a harder one to read because it was, it was written as a letter, and so the original reader would have been reading it, obviously. So there was a lot of commas and stuff that were hard to decipher as uh, a narrator. Hopefully I did okay. I'm going to go back over it and try and draw out a few things that we can think about as we think about the era and how what we can take out for today. So he starts out there saying the inhabitants of a number of towns within this province having at their several town meetings legally called. Again, the governor had dissolved the general assembly, so they used the town halls, which is my understanding 
was a perfectly legal thing. It was a common thing. The, the people had an obligation to participate in the politics, the local, be part of the local polis. So they did that, but they actually coordinated with the other town halls. I'm not sure how common that was. And then the Boston is taking the liberty of writing on behalf of these 98 towns that said they that it's writing on behalf of. So he says we're writing because we have an apprehension that their charter and constitutional rights and liberties are infringed by the late acts of parliament raising a revenue in America without their consent. And then they had ships show up with standing army. They weren't there to protect the colonies. They were clearly there to police and enforce against the colonies. And then he says in that same paragraph, we're writing to promote the peace and good order of His Majesty's subjects in this province, so alarming and distressing a crisis. So they're trying, this is a diplomacy, this is peacekeeping, this is the purpose of this letter. And I'll just take this venture to say, try and imagine, you know, they, they colonists did not have CNN to tell them what the state wanted to say. You know, they didn't have the state media we have today. They didn't have television. They, honestly... They were waiting for news to come by ship in the grapevine of proclamations and see how the king received their news. So in the meantime, they were doing everything they could to write and try and make it clear, look, we're not, we're not doing this out of a rebellion, but we are standing up for our rights and we're trying to get this worked out. And he says, his majesty's subjects, he's not saying the independent United States of America that came few years later. In the next paragraph, he says, we are writing to disclaim all pretensions to any authoritative and governmental acts. So they're saying, look, we're doing, we're, we're trying to do what we had to do to maintain peace and order and some semblance of society here since our General Assembly got dissolved. And we've just done that. They're maintaining, look, we're not doing this out of a spirit of faction or anything. We're trying to cool things down. And so they're writing to Dennis DeBert, the agent in London, asking him to present their case before Parliament, before the King, specifically in person, they're hoping. I don't know if Dennis DeBert had the audience with the King that they apparently thought he did. I don't know how that worked out. It sounds like they thought he could just waltz in and request an audience with the King. It's a world I don't really, I just can't imagine. And then in the next paragraph there, he says, uh, we're just trying to restore harmony, union and harmony, and upon which the welfare of both undoubtedly depends, will be confirmed and established. So he's pointing out, look, splitting up is not good for anybody. We like being, we like being part of the empire, and you like having us as colonies. It's beneficial. Let's get back to that. So we're trying to do diplomacy. And then he takes this opportunity, and this is, again, a window into at least one side of the argument. We can't, it's hard to see the king's side of the argument from this, hard to see Parliament's side of the argument, but we can at least see Samuel Adams, the Boston townspeople's side from here. They try and explain the present discontent we originally apprehend arose from the nations having been informed of the ability of the people here to pay considerable duties and taxes. So as you know, there is the, what, what we know generally as the French and Indian War, which was part of a much bigger, really global war, 
at the time. So the colonies incurred their own heavy load of debt. Now the crown was heavily indebted. And the counselors to the king, my understanding is that the counselors to King George had kind of told him, let's just milk these colonies. Uh, they're, you know, they owe it to you. They owe it to the crown. You protected them. That was what the king was hearing. Well, the colonies had their own problems and their own repercussions from fighting that war. And they did it as dutiful subjects, they say. It was born by the people with the greatest alacrity, he says. So he says the nation, Britain, being itself involved in a heavy debt, was easily induced to avail itself of the supposed affluence of the colonies. And unfortunately, they apprehend, took such a measure as will naturally awaken the jealousy of every free and sensible people, namely by passing acts to tax them without their consent. This was basic to them. This, this was, again, as my grandpa would say, intuitively obvious to the most casual observer. Any enlightened being should know taxing without representation was just not right. It was against the whole precedent of British history, recent British history for sure, thereby their constitution. So there's a takeaway. If you're free and sensible, Sam Adams says, you'll be awakened to jealousy by taxation without representation. <laughs> then he says that they wrote about this in the Massachusetts circular letter, and apparently you didn't take it too well, but be assured we weren't trying to be, what does he say here, a spirit of faction, disloyalty, and rebellion. They said there was dutiful, loyal petitions to a majesty, and like it said in the circular letter, the only purport of which was to acquaint them of having their petition for relief from the common grievance, everybody was feeling this with hopes of success from the royal clemency. They had already tried individually petitioning the crown, so they were hoping to get more of a united front, not necessarily trying to breed disloyalty and rebellion. Again, that's what he's saying. I have to take it from face value at this point. But Sam Adams is contending that there is a, a faction trying to stoke war. There's a faction trying to stoke the nation to split off and to the colonies to split off into independence. And Benjamin Franklin, I believe, said something like that too. In order to raise the jealousy of the nation, the most trifling incidents have been wrought up to the highest pitch of aggravation by persons who still find means to gain a credit there. So what these people have something to gain by splitting us up, by dividing into faction. Who? So you always got to think, who stands to gain? The most trifling incidents, blown up out of proportion to the highest pitch of aggravation, he says. So he says, we're going to cover some of those here. 18th of March last, being the anniversary of the repeal of the Stamp Act, there was a, uh, some boys went to the house of John Williams, Esquire, the Inspector General, and whether they meant to do him injury or not, it all subsided, nothing happened. And His Majesty's Council even put out an official stamp of, okay, this isn't worth, we're not going to prosecute anybody here. And he says it's included, so he must have sent it with DeBert, I'm not sure. And it's hard to, you can't see it when I'm reading it, but he quotes so injurious in one that it could not have been made such a subject of so injurious in one. He's actually quoting some letter of whoever this, these rebel rousers are, these people who he refers to as the enemy, I'm not even sure he knows it is who it is. 
I'm not even sure we know who it is, but he knows something's not right. Things are being blown up out of proportion. This really didn't look like what it is being blown up to look like. And I can tell the king's not hearing our side of the story. So he's saying, there's somebody blowing this up out of proportion. And somebody wrote, it was so injurious and one, is a quote, by persons disposed to bring misery and distress upon the town and province. And their declaration, it is said, has given great offense to the governor. So the governor heard of this by whoever wrote that letter, that report of when they went to John Williams' home and were not being truthful in reporting. Then he moves on to another incident. So on the 10th of June following, yeah, it looked a little bit more like a riot, but it was only a few hours' existence and with very little mischief. So he's saying, okay, I'll grant you it's looked more like a riot, but let's still keep things in perspective here because you're sending warships, you're sending warships to us who were your friends and we still feel like we have a spirit of loyalty and to the crown and you're sending warships to our harbor. So some background here for the segment on the 10th of June that the town of Boston have already given you a full account of this affair. That's an obviously in another letter, but I'll sum up here. I looked it up and I'll link to the article. It's actually a really good article from the New England Historical Society, but I don't want to copy their work by just reading it. So I'm going to sum up very shortly and go check it out. It's called, referring to the Liberty Affair, uh, about John Hancock, the wealthiest merchant in Boston, I think in the whole colony of Massachusetts. He had lost a ship because for a long time, there was a habit ever since the Stamp Act came down and everything, everybody just ignored it. It wasn't getting enforced because the merchants and stuff realized, hey, I'd rather pay off these customs agents than pay the tax on its face. Because to comply with the damned act, John Dickinson said, is to rivet perpetual chains upon you and your posterity. That's what they had been reading. So rather than comply with the act, they just paid off the agents. And the agents were complicit. The agents were cool with it. Everybody just ignored these acts. So they were outraged about them, but they really hadn't been affecting them. The Stamp Act, the Townshend Acts, and stuff like that. Well, an edict came down because eventually, you got to keep in mind, it takes months to cross the ocean for the king to hear and the parliament to hear, hey, they're just, they're just ignoring this stuff. That's why we started it back in 1761, and we've, we've now come all the way to 1768, and it's brewing so far well, it takes months for everything to get across. And so letters are being sent. There's intrigue happening, I believe. And so where was I? Oh, yeah. So the king parliament, they passed this act that said, basically, you can't be paying off our agents anymore. All the agents, if you remember in, a, in the circular letter, they were outraged because they they had to revamp the system instead of the colonies, the local governance, electing their own tax collectors, like Sam Adams was a tax collector. Instead of them electing their own tax agents and customs agents, the crown was appointing them and sending them from Britain or telling the governor to pick loyal, you know, 
loyalist people to be the ta tax collectors, so they couldn't be bought off. So the customs duties had to be collected. This, the uh, various revenue raisins, I can't remember all of them, they were now actually being enforced. Well, through that, John Hancock ended up getting a, tr a uh, boat seized wrongfully. Again, looking a couple hundred years later, it's still hard to tell what the truth of the matter is, but John Hancock ended up losing a ship. They, the townspeople thought wrongfully. And so, long story short, they ended up burning this custom agent's pleasure boat. He had like a little boat. If something was light enough to be drug up on shore and dragged to the town square by the Liberty Tree, and they burned it right there in protest. So these, these people, they weren't messing around. But it was protest. And they burned the ship. Well, again, somebody, I'm not sure who was writing it. It might say in this article, you'll have to read it. But somebody was writing, basically trying to stir up crap and accusing them of trying to start a war. And so back to the letter. Again, you can't you can't hear italics, but he's quoting where he says, before Mr. Hancock's door, he's saying, that's ridiculous to accuse this, to put this at the feet of Mr. Hancock is ridiculous. There was, the it was in the town square. There was lots of gentlemen around. This was no more Dr. Mr. Hancock than anybody else. So he's defending Mr. Hancock and trying to get, a, get some facts straight. And actually, before that, he mentions how they had, that, I think it was on that same day, on the 10th of June, that before they burned the, bot, the yacht, these customs officers were being so obstinate and ridiculous, and he uses the word haughty, in protest, the, the crowd went and ended up breaking a few panes of glass, not to the value of five pounds. And so somebody wrote this letter accusing, trying to blow this up, Again, I hope this sounds familiar as like they're trying to make this one day, June the 10th, insurrection. And that's, that word's in here. That word was in the letter somewhere that they're being accused of insurrection. And yes, it was a riot. Remember June the 10th. They broke the glass. They left trash all over the place. They went between the red ropes. They burned a boat. You got to remember, these people burned effigies and they tarred and feathered people. They had already done that. Burning a boat in the town square, this, this is just a different age. So he's saying his majesty's council actually gave a just account of the occasion of that riot. Like, they got the facts straight, but the governor wouldn't cause it to be read public. He, they, he refused to kind of iron out to try and smooth the waves. No, they just kept somebody that I don't know what the intrigue was going on, but it was clear he uses the word enemy in here. Care was taken, however, by those who to speak in the softest terms are unfriendly to us to transmit this affair to the nation in so aggravated a light as to incense to a high degree. We cannot indeed wonder that when such false representations are made by persons, as we seem to believe, of rank and figure here, which I think he's saying by that, if I'm interpreting that right, I mean, there's somebody here in our midst that's sending these letters off to Britain 
and trying to stoke war. And so I was saying, we're, we're kind of shocked that you guys are believing this. Like, we've been good subjects. We've, we're, we're just trying to assert our rights here because we're not going to be trampled on. But what was it in that song? What was it? Uh, the wealth and that glory immortal may be if she is but just and if we are be, but free. They weren't asking for any crazy freedom. They were asking for the same freedom that the British subjects in the Isle of Great Britain enjoyed, except they were represented directly in Parliament, as much as anybody was back then. And the colonies couldn't be, as we've covered, the colonies couldn't be represented in Parliament. It makes no sense. There's, it would be a totally inefficient government. So he's saying, you're sending a military force, it sounds like, because actually Dennis DeBert had sent a letter that beat the troops there. So back, I think it was in June, there were there were there was a warship there to police in the bay in Boston Harbor, but there were no troops yet. Well, Dennis DeBert sent a letter. Uh, it got to Samuel Adams in September. Got to the Boston Town Meeting in September, and said, "Look, they're sending they're sending ground troops, and they're going to be." You're gonna you're gonna have them in amongst you. Well, turns out that that would come shortly after they sent this letter, before this letter even got published in the Gazette. I think it's like the day after this letter got sent. Sure enough, troops full of a ground force of British troops to be quartered among them showed up. So he's saying you're you're doing this to us at least in orderly and well affected, as sensible of their rights, and yet as patient under oppression as anybody in His Majesty's empire. He says, Nothing we apprehend is wanting to restore the much-desired harmony, but for His Majesty's subjects on both sides the Atlantic fully to explain themselves to each other, which is not likely to be done through the medium of interested and designing men. So, pay attention to the intrigue. Pay attention to motives. Like he said earlier, somebody stands to gain from this. But we need to have a conversation, we need to sit down and settle this, or this is going to blow up. Well, lo and behold, it's difficult to do that over 3,000 miles because somebody's carrying the mail, and I don't know, I don't know, I'd love to learn more about who it was and why they were stoking this and what their perspective was there in Boston. He says, could such men be removed? The nation, attentive to the calm voice of reason, which we humbly apprehend has been uttered by the colonies, would soon view their disposition, that of this province, in its just light, and be convinced that it is their warmest inclination, as well as in their power, to add strength and riches to the mother state and administer to the splendor of the British crown, saying, like, this could work out better for everybody. We just keep our heads cool. They were trying to say, let's keep our heads cool and talk this out and fully explain ourselves to each other. Of course, Samuel Adams, he wrote a lot. And I don't know, looking back personally, just being transparent, he was, he was, I mean, he's like the archetypal revolutionary writer. He is, except he's like a godly revolutionary writer not like a robiosphere spare. So I'm still I'm still kind of on the fence on Sam Adams with how much he was 
doing some intrigue of his own, trying to accomplish his own ends, and and just he was a very good writer. He was a very pretty decent orator, and so he was using that to try and buy time. Or was he being, was this all face value? I don't know. But I think we can apply this to ourselves and just realize there's propagandists on both sides of every argument. Obviously, there's the state media, which sadly some people don't even realize is the state media, just because it says CNN or ABC or Fox News or whatever. It's state media. Somebody told the story of... uh, the taxi driver in China, the Chinese taxi driver said, oh, you guys, you guys don't even know that you're watching propaganda in China. We know we're watching propaganda and you guys don't even know you're watching propaganda here. And that's, that's true. If you know it's propaganda, you can, it helps you reason. It helps you keep a cool head. So there's the state media propaganda, but then there's also probably doubtless Propaganda on the other side. There's propagandists on all sides. Everybody's got their angle. And so we have to realize that and we have to dive into truth. And I would say be anchored to the truth of the Word of God. So obviously, Sam Adams and Great Britain, the United Colonies in America and Great Britain, they weren't able to settle their differences without going to blows. Sad. But... We do celebrate Independence Day every year. So it worked out for good. But, I mean, what would it have been like if if we could have kept cool heads? Who knows? It's kind of fun to think about. But as we're heading into this time, at the very beginning of the letter, he says, there's the writing they had written because of the great and prevailing uneasiness among the people of the province in general. And that sounds familiar to me. There is a great and prevailing uneasiness among the people of this country, of the whole world right now. Things are ramping up. So it doesn't hurt to make a plan. It doesn't hurt to plan. But seek God's face. Keep a cool head. Try and be diplomatic. Even if you realize it's going to go to blows. Even if that's your feeling, that's your sense. Keep a cool head. Be diplomatic like Sam Adams was, whether he knew it was going to go to blows or not, he was being diplomatic up to the very end. Personally, I don't think he knew it was going to go to blows at this time. I've taken this at this point in 1768 as more of a face value. Be diplomatic. But you know what? He was profound with his words, and that should be a challenge to us also. It's a challenge to me. We need to be proficient in this art of grammar, dialectic or reason, rhetoric. We need to be able to persuade people. And that's something I've been learning a lot about as I've studied education. Well, I have talked longer than I intended to. This was going to be a short episode because it was a short letter. I'm not sure how I'm already at 43 minutes. So I'll go ahead and close it out here. But I wanted to just touch on a few things. I'm doing a lot of thinking about the podcast for next year. Honestly, I've enjoyed doing these historical readings. It's been great for the first year. It's not what I originally intended to do with this podcast. I'd really love to touch on some other things that are more general liberty, kind of philosophical, and really biblical. 
So next year, I'm still praying about how I'm going to carve out enough time because I want to put out more episodes. I want to be more dedicated to the podcast. But I'm not going to just magically have more time. So I'm praying about how to schedule that out and put out some more original content. But also, we got to take our victories. They say that some, I can't remember the statistic, but it's like 99% of podcasts or something like that never make it past 10 episodes and they fizzle out. So I got to take a little victory lap. I made it past 10 episodes. I think this is number 12 or number 11. Sorry about my phone going off. But I barely got this episode in for September. September 30th, this is like burning the midnight oil. I got to go to work here in a little while. If you have some feedback, if you have some topic suggestions, if you have any feedback, I hate your podcast, you suck, but I listen to it anyway, or I love your podcast, whatever it be, send it to mindyourliberty at gmail.com. I know, I know, I shouldn't be using Gmail, I should be using ProtonMail, I just haven't had a chance to set it up. But I do want to move to a privacy service like ProtonMail. But anyway, send the feedback, mindyourliberty at gmail.com. Visit the website. Tell somebody about the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, if you enjoy the podcast, share it with somebody. Liking it, if you feel like it, that's great. But share it with somebody. Tell somebody about it. Send them to mindyourliberty.com or whatever podcatcher you listen on. And uh, thanks for listening. And I hope you have a good weekend. And in the meantime, until the next episode, be sure and mind your liberty.